Gospel according to St. Mark. Jesus also said, The kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise night and day, and the seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself first stalk, then the head, and then the full grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle because the harvest has come. He also said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak with, to them except in parables, but he explained everything in private to his disciples. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the news lately, but uh, there's been a pretty big brouhaha over something called critical race theory. Big article in the Courier-Journal today talking about it. I imagine most people had never heard of it before. It became notorious after the publication of the New York Times Magazine 1619 project, which was published on the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved African in Virginia. Now, one of the central claims of the 1619 project centers on the reality that after slavery and its after effects, We have, to come to some, we have to come to grips with it as a central feature of our identity in the history of America. That, in fact, America was, from its founding, built on the backs of black people. And that, that often unspoken reality continues to form American identity beneath the horizon of most people's awareness. But critical Race theory, I mean, it's 50 years old. It's been around for a long time. It didn't magically appear upon the publication of Nicole Hannah Jones's 1619 project. But, so, what is it, and why are people so upset about it? Jason Stanley, in his recent article for The Economist, argues that critical race theory seeks to explain the fact of persistent racial injustice by analyzing the practices of American institutions. It's not about people's individual characters. It is rather a claim about structures, the practices and habits that perpetuate racial inequality. Our complaints about uh, critical race theory then are, 
largely about a refusal to admit that the way things are is the way they were designed to be. <laughs> Instead, it, it, it's entirely a consequence. Uh, not of individual effort and individual failure, because that would implicitly affirm, if it were about systemic issues, the fear that if we change the system uh, in a way that might somehow now produce equitable outcomes, well then, I might not enjoy all the same advantages that I do now, which would totally suck because my life is pretty great. Or if not great, then, you know, better than some of those other people. If we say, as critical race theory does, for example, that the United States was built in large part uh, upon the, the backs and the labor of enslaved black people, then that would mean that white people benefited from the founders to the current day from advantages that we've all been socialized to believe we created ourselves. And that such injustice requires restitution. Now, isn't it amazing that just a few words can turn the world on its head, right? Bring people to rhetorical, even physical blows. I mean, somewhere down deep, many of us react reflexively against that kind of recognition of the power of words. I mean, after all, we were taught from a very young age that while sticks and stones may break my bones, Words will never hurt me. But we know that's not true, don't we? As Fred Craddock used to like to say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can kill me. Even though they're small, I mean, seemingly insignificant, words are powerful. I mean, they can tear down worlds they can break down the dignity and humanity of a person or a whole group of persons. Uh, of course, these tiny little verbal packages masking unspeakable power can also do great good in the world. I mean, words can heal the broken, give strength to the weary and the oppressed, provide incentive to achieve great and wonderful things. To be told that you're loved despite what everyone else says can be like being born again. To be told that you're forgiven when you least deserve or expect it is a priceless gift, greater than anything you can buy with a credit card. To be welcomed and affirmed when your doubts about yourself are greatest can literally save your life. So the words are small, tiny things, We, we know that good things often come in small packages. Great beauty and love and reconciliation can be unleashed on the world with just a few words. Of course, the atoms they bust apart in a nuclear explosion are small too, so, I mean, you know. 
And that's been the traditional take on the parable of the mustard seed. That small thing produces big return, right? That is to say, the kingdom of God is supposed to have started out really small and then grew in this sort of amazing way that nobody could ever foreseen just by looking at the size of that tiny little seed. So big, in fact, that eventually it provides shade even for the birds. Small thing to big impact. It's easy peasy. But see, I don't think that that takes Jesus' radical uh, understanding of the reign of God seriously enough. I mean, when Jesus mentions the kingdom of God, he's not talking about some purely spiritual realm after we die. When Jesus says kingdom of God, he's not just referring to the sweet by and by. He's, he's talking about the world we live in right now, and he's got some political fish to fry when it comes to the way this world is and ought to be constructed. Now, <clears throat> I know that there's a general belief that Jesus wasn't political. It's a popular belief. But I would like to suggest to you that it's a misreading of the Gospels. Because here's the thing. Any time that Jesus says kingdom, which is political, of God, which is religious, he's mixing religion and politics in ways that can't be unmixed. Like, 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 like the four different colors of Play-Doh that the kids originally had, that by the end of the day are, is one indistinguishable lump of purple with yellow streaks. I mean, once they're mixed together, you can never fully unmix them. Now, you might be tempted to think that I'm playing some sort of rhetorical slight hand that well, yes, Jesus says kingdom of God, but, that, but that, that's merely a spiritual term. It doesn't have anything to do with earthly politics. Maybe I'm just playing fast and loose with language in order to sort of advance my own agenda. But you see, the, the, the problem that the over-spiritualizing of Jesus always has to contend with is really pretty straightforward. And that is, he was crucified. Now, at this point, you might be tempted to ask, mm, yeah, well, so uh, we knew that. What difference does that make? Well, as I've said before, in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was a form of capital punishment reserved for political revolutionaries, insurrectionists. Even the traditional two thieves between whom Jesus is crucified are not like ordinary Ocean's Eleven kind of thieves. They were leste in the Greek, which is elsewhere translated as revolutionary. Barabbas, the political prisoner whose life the crowd preferred saved over Jesus, for example, was named as a leste. See, Jesus posed a, 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 a threat to Roman rule, and they crucified him for his presumption, for his politics. A chief reason for which was his insistence on proclaiming this new kingdom, a kingdom ruled by God's laws and not by Caesar's. See, if Jesus uses the kingdom of God, among other things, 
as merely a reference to some future celestial home, then he probably would have died of old age. But certainly not by crucifixion. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that Jesus didn't have a stake in spirituality. Only that his spirituality had dirty hands, a sweaty brow, and a raspy voice from living among oppressed peasants and giving voice to their oppression. All right, so, all right, back to our text. Jesus introduces this parable by saying that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which, as I've noted, has traditionally been interpreted as an allegory about how a small thing can grow to be a big thing. But as I've also noted, I, I think such an, an interpretation is just is too safe, too domesticated, turning Jesus into a kindly Palestinian version of Aesop, telling morally edifying fables to help kitties grow up to be productive citizens. And as I've suggested, the, the, the Romans didn't kill potential messiahs for being too spiritual. They killed them for being potential threats. So if Jesus is talking about a kingdom to rival Caesar's, a kingdom headed up by God and not the Roman Empire, what does he mean by comparing this new enterprise to a mustard seed? That seems to me to be a really interesting question. Well, first off, it's important to note that mustard plants were wild plants which were viewed by the people at that time as an invasive species, a noxious weed in an agrarian society, sort of like kudzu or poison ivy. As Pliny noted a few thousand years ago, once mustard seed takes root, it's almost impossible ever to get rid of it. Now, part of the reason for that is because of those infernal little seeds Mustard plants slough off these tiny little seeds by the thousands, which when they hit the ground begin to germinate almost immediately. So consequently, if you were a farmer in Jesus' part of the world, cultivating a nice orderly crop grown in rows, requiring special care and nurturing, if, if somehow a mustard plant were introduced into the system, it'd just wreak havoc. The mustard seed would grow, threatening the whole well-regulated system. Now, the other thing about tiny seeds in the ancient world that we know from archaeology is that they could get lodged in the mortar, in between the bricks, and the plants would start growing, taking root. It would cause the slow, grinding deterioration of the whole structure. I mean, tiny seeds, and we know this from archaeology, could topple great buildings if allowed to take root. But you see, not only did the mustard seed offer its own horticultural dangers, it could potentially provide shade for birds. So, you might wonder, I mean, what's the problem with that? I mean, that actually... Sounds kind of pleasant. <laughs> well, if any of the crops survived the mustard seed, 
Guess who was there to swoop in and steal what was left? You know why they put scarecrows in fields? Yeah, to scare the crows away. Because birds are also a threat to an orderly agricultural system. So, see, here we have Jesus telling a parable comparing this new reign of God, the, the, the one that will supplant the reign of Caesar, and he compares it to a noxious weed, which I love. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like kudzu. Now, not an especially glorious comparison, I'll grant you that, but a telling one nevertheless. I mean, you start sowing those tiny seeds and the orderly world of the folks in charge is about to be disrupted. And when the folks in charge get antsy, <laughs> you better watch out. 2007, the Taliban took control of the Swat Valley in Pakistan and life changed dramatically for the people there. Cultural activities like dancing and watching television were outlawed. And another change made by the Taliban was the prohibition against girls attending school. Now, one 10-year-old little girl took exception to this heavy-handed way and went on Pakistani television and wanted to know how dare the Taliban take away my basic right to education? Ten years old. She starts blogging anonymously on the BBC's Urdu language website about what it was like to live under Taliban rule. In particular, her desire to go to school. And as war broke out between the Pakistani government and the Taliban, this young girl became a refugee, having to flee with her family hundreds of miles from their home in the Swat Valley. And eventually, after she was able to return home, she again took up the cause of being a thorn in the Taliban's side. And for three years, she blogged, building an enormous following, advocating on behalf of other girls for access to free education. Which sounds like a good thing to us, right? Not everybody agrees, though, apparently. And by 2012, the Taliban had identified and targeted Malala Yousafzai for death. You believe that? They put out a hit on a 15-year-old girl. On October 9th, she was riding home from school on a bus with her friends talking about schoolwork. And two members of the Taliban stopped the bus a young bearded Talib asked for Malala by name. And then he fired three shots at her. And one of the bullets entered and exited her head and lodged in her shoulder. She was seriously wounded. And that same day, she was airlifted to a Pakistani military hospital in Peshawar. And four days later, to an intensive care unit in Birmingham, England. Well, of course, you know that Malala Yousafzai survived and at 17 became the youngest recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in history. Why? 
because she refused to remain silent. She kept tossing these tiny, charged little words around like miniature atom bombs. It's one little girl. I mean, that's it. One little girl speaking out about the education for other girls. That's, that's all it took for the Taliban to get really, really nervous. So nervous, in fact, that they figured they needed to kill her to save their convenient little arrangement. But isn't that so often the way that power reacts to threats? One little girl, a few small words, one tiny little seed. Shut it up, stamp it out. When we say kingdom of God in church, though, it, it sounds like good news. It, it, it sounds like the voice of justice clamoring against the discrimination faced by our transgender siblings. It sounds like the voice of compassion raising the alarm about kicking people off their health care. It sounds like the voice of those who shout out in solidarity with all the women who are looking to make their way to the clinic without being harassed. It sounds like the voice of a river whispering to be spared the devastation of humanity. It sounds like the voice of our gay, lesbian, and bisexual siblings finally finding welcome affirmation sitting around the same table. It sounds like it sounds like the voice of a black man unjustly accused, crying out that he can't breathe, crying out for his mama, crying out for justice in a world that has too often withheld it. It sounds like the voice of Malala Yousafzai resisting the Taliban. It sounds, when we say kingdom of God in church, like the voice of Jesus challenging the corrupt systems that attempt to thwart this new world that God has in mind and is unleashing. See, when we say kingdom of God in church, I mean, it sounds like good news. But to Caesar, to the powerful, to the people who always come out smelling like roses, to the people who benefit from a nice orderly system that they alone control and benefit from, it doesn't sound like good news at all. It sounds like the end of everything that has consistently given them advantages that most people will never enjoy. So a mustard seed is small, I mean, to be sure, but its power comes from the nature of its ability to disrupt. It's threat to the way things are. To those who profit from a system, the benefits of which go to the people on top, the kingdom of God doesn't sound like good news at all. But to those who've been left behind when the crop starts rolling in, those who've been left out in the cold, those who've been forgotten, who've been harassed, abused, exploited, and oppressed, to those people, it sounds like the voice of hope. It sounds like the voice of justice. It sounds like the voice 
of God. And that's good news indeed. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.